When I used to think about boldness, I thought of extravagant, attention-grabbing, show-stopping actions that changed the course of history. And yeah, boldness can look like that. But what I've been starting to realize is that if I keep on waiting for a monumental opportunity to show a great act of boldness, I will have missed far too many little moments of simply living the reality that you have always desired and have created for me to experience. I've fallen and I continue to fall into that trap of waiting and yearning for the big moments instead of embracing the little ones. There have been so many times where I could have been experiencing the full joy and contentment that comes with saying yes to you above everything else, but instead it was taken and replaced with fear and anxiety. And I know, don't get me wrong, I let it be taken. I wanted to carry the burden on my own because I felt like something was wrong with me, that I was sick, broken, unable to be fixed and repaired. And because of that, I hurt not only myself, but people around me too. I didn't want to let you in because I felt so entirely messed up. I got so wrapped up in these lies of the enemy that I put you in a box and I closed it tight. I missed out on moments where you wanted to use me because I wanted to stay stuck in this fake it till I make it reality that I've shaped for myself. It was safe and I could control it. Then it occurred to me, this current reality that I was living was not the life that you wanted for me, but it was my choice to change. I had to choose to let go of control over this fake it till I make it reality and give it to you to replace it. Because the story you have written for me is exponentially better than my own. I had to let you be the author and not me. But that would mean being vulnerable, admitting that I needed help. It would mean digging deep into the thoughts and fears that have held me captive and doing it for me and with you. And that was a scary time, and sometimes it's still scary. But I never again want to let my fears cripple my ability to live the reality that you have for me. Boldness can be extravagant, attention-grabbing, and show-stopping. But most of the time, it's little, beautiful, precious moments of saying yes to you and no to everything else. Being bold is in the details. For me, it's a daily choice to look fear in the face and say you have no authority here. It looked like going to therapy. It looks like going to you first with my fears and understanding that you are in full control. Boldness looks like being honest in a world that can be so artificial. 
Boldness looks different for everyone, and I don't want myself or anybody else selling themselves short because they haven't had their big moment of showing boldness in a radical way. And I don't want to put you in a box ever again. I want to walk alongside you, seeing every moment, every breath that I take, every conversation that I have, all the little details as an opportunity to be used as your vessel on this beautiful journey called life. And now I know that you will always move, no matter what. But in order for me to see it and participate in it, I need to continually weed out what blinds me from you. That is when boldness happens. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. Boldness, vulnerability, difficult conversations, all of that just makes me sweat. I'm like, how many of you love to have difficult conversations with people? I was thinking this week about when, when I was the college pastor, there was an opportunity I had that God had put on my heart that I should meet up with one of our students and, and kind of call out some issues that I saw kind of growing in their life. And I'm not the like confrontative type. I'm not the bold person. I'm not the vulnerability person, right? But I'm like, okay, God is calling me to do this. I need to have this conversation. So I, I texted her. I said, hey, can we meet up at Starbucks? I want to talk to you about something. She said, yeah, sure, right? So I go to Starbucks and I'm there like three hours early, right? I like scope out the perfect table that's private enough for a conversation like this, but public enough that if she tries to murder me, there are witnesses around. <laughs> Finally comes in, she sits down, we do our coffee, we small talk, right? And I'm just hoping that the conversation that I feel compelled to have will organically develop, but it doesn't. So then I try like beating around the bush a little bit, like, how's this? How's that? How's this? How's that? Trying to triangulate around the issue and that doesn't work. And then like 45 minutes, an hour into the conversation, she looks at her watch. She's like, oh, I got to go. I'm like, all right, have a good day. And she walks out the door. So I pull out my phone, and I text her and say, hey, that was awesome. Can we do it again tomorrow? <laughs> right? I don't even remember how many meetings it took before I finally drew out whatever it was. I can't even remember what it was, the thing that we were supposed to talk about. <sighs> but if you've been tracking with this series, and we're starting to talk about Stepping into the difficult conversations that God has prepared for us to have, some of you, if you're like me, are not too enthusiastic about having a difficult conversation. If God has called you to, to call someone out in your family, right? that's scary. If, someone's call, if God has called you to, to go into your boss at work and say, I, need, I want to talk to you about some of the things that are happening here, it's terrifying. If God has called you to confess some sin in your life or to confront some sin in someone else's life, there is nothing you would rather do most likely than to run from that conversation altogether. You know, the easiest way to get through a difficult conversation is avoid it altogether. <laughs> and yet you know it. if God has laid something on your heart, if he's called you to do something, if he's kind of drawing out something new in you to have that conversation, there's no avoiding it. 
Now, the problem that we're going to encounter as we look at this text this morning is that there will be times in your faith when you know God is calling you to step into a difficult conversation, right? Even if you're a person who hates difficult conversations, there will be moments. It's almost like when you're driving down the street and you see someone who's asking for money and you try to ignore them and then you feel like God's saying, no, I want you to help them. You're like, no, right? You're driving like, no, and you and God are fighting and finally you make the U-turn because he won't get off your back about it. You like throw him some money and drive away, right? (laughs) The same thing happens with these hard conversations. There will be times when God singles you out and says, hey, I want you to deal with this. This this thing in your family, you're the Christian. You've got to bring this up. There will be times that you know that that you don't want to have this hard conversation because you love having hard conversations, but you'll know that you want to have this hard conversation because God himself is calling you to have the difficult conversation. And this is what we've discovered in Esther. We're we're in Esther chapter 5 this morning. We've been walking through this book. And it's all been kind of building to this moment. If you were here last week, we we talked about the fact that this edict had gone out in all of Persia, saying that on a certain date, every Jewish man, woman, and child would be murdered. And Mordecai, Esther's uncle, hears about this edict, and he's mourning, and he's fasting, and he's calling out to God, and he is just in shambles. And Esther says, what's going on? And he says, haven't you heard? Here's what's happening. And then he looks at Esther in a note. He looks at Esther and says, you're the queen. Can't you do something? She's like, no. What am I supposed to do? I have no power here. If I just walk into the throne room uninvited, I will be killed on the spot. But Mordecai writes back to Esther, the famous words that we've talked about these last couple weeks. says, Esther, there's a chance that you've been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. That your destiny is this conversation. That your purpose on the planet is this conversation. That the reason you've been made queen and endured all of this hardship and the abuse and all of that, the reason for it all is for this conversation. So Esther, yeah, you might die, but you might die if you do nothing. But this is a conversation that God has ordained for you to have. So something in Esther probably God in Esther, opens her eyes. She says, okay, I'm in. And she tells everyone in the country, all the Jewish people, pray for me, fast for me three days. And at the end of the third day, I'm going to go into the king's throne room. And if I die, I die. But I'm going to try to see if God has called me to make waves, to make a change, to pivot the country through my obedience to him. This morning, as we look at Esther chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and kind of go through the climax of the Esther story, what we're going to see is maybe some strategy that we can employ when it's time for us to have those hard conversations. And so you can jump in with me. We're going to start right here at the beginning of Esther chapter 5. Esther goes to the throne room. The king is there. She's wearing her royal robes. She's ready to meet the king. The king notices her in the doorway. And instead of executing her, he invites her in. He extends his scepter towards her. It says in in chapter 5, verse 1, that on the third day, she put on her royal robes. She stood in the inner court. The king was on his throne. He saw her. He was pleased with her. He held out to her the gold scepter. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked the million-dollar question. What 
is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. It's like, now that's an answer to prayer. <laughs> She's not dead. She's standing in the king's presence. And it's almost like he like, goes behind his throne and puts up a tee, puts a baseball on the tee, hands her a bat and says, hit it, right? Ask me for anything, Esther. What, you want the salvation of your people? You want anything? You want me to spare your life? You want me to change this edict? Anything you want, just ask me, and I promise I will give it to you. And Esther responds to his question by saying this. If it pleases the king, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. That's not what she was supposed to say. She was supposed to ask for the deliverance of God's people, but she asked the king to dinner. And the king's like, all right, I like food, right? Haman, let's go. So they go to dinner, and they sit down at dinner. And while they're at dinner, the king says to Esther, okay, I'm ready. What's the thing that you want? Tell me, half my kingdom is yours. Just ask for it. And Esther says, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor... And if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I prepare for them. <laughs> then I'll answer your question. I picture myself in that Starbucks, right? And for the last like 10 years, as I've read the book of Esther, I'm thinking, is she botching this? Like, is this a story of God's grace? Like, I'll give you another chance. I'll give you another chance. I'll give you another chance. But the more I read the story this week, the more I realized this is not a story of Esther botching her big opportunity. This is a story, obviously, of Esther leveraging her big opportunity. So I have to ask, why? Why did it take her so long to get to her request? I don't think this is Esther being me at Starbucks. I think this is more like your picture that you're at work. You're in your cubicle office, whatever you do at work, right? You're there, and your boss shows up. And your boss says, hey, I want to talk to you about something. Can I talk to you? And you're like, absolutely. What do you need? And your boss says, no, I... I'd rather not talk here. Can you come meet me down in my office? We'll talk there. Right? Some of you are like, uh-oh. <laughs> I know where this is going. This is not going to be good. Right? And so you go down to your boss's office and sit down. And now you're sweating. <sighs> yeah, what's going on? Um, I'm here. You know, I just, I'm a good employee. I do what you say. Right? I'm here. What do you need? Your boss is like, hey, I just wanted to give you a heads up that um, you and I need to talk about something. I don't want to do it now. Uh, I'm thinking probably a better time, maybe the end of the week, right before the workday ends on Friday. Once you come back to my office, I'm going to have someone here, a third party. I just, I just need to talk to you about something. Uh, this is not your boss botching her opportunity to fire you. This is your bo boss preparing you to be fired, right? This is your boss escalating the conversation, helping you to see that the conversation is going to be one of gravity, giving you some time to pre-process, telling you there's going to be HR involved, right? This is your boss raising the stakes on what's happening. As I read this story, I, I feel like this is what Esther is doing, right? The king comes in, he's like, oh, Esther, what's up? I love you. What do you need? Anything, right? You want a new Ferrari? She's like, I do have something to ask you, but I'd rather ask you over dinner. Okay, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, what is it? <sighs> hey, let's, let's meet up again tomorrow. Um, I'll, tell, I'll tell you tomorrow. Let's meet up tomorrow. Oh, okay. And the king, in this moment, has got to be wondering, like, okay, what does she want to ask about? Right? His heart is probably changing from this, 
place of like fun to a place of wondering or worrying or thinking or wrestling. Like, what's happening here? It's interesting as you watch Esther kind of navigate this whole season, she doesn't seem like someone who doesn't know what she's doing. She seems like someone who knows exactly what she's doing. And I wonder if what she's doing here in chapter 5 as she's delaying the conversation is the same thing she was doing the three days before the conversation when she called on everyone to pray and fast. I wonder if she's giving space for God to move. Now, as we look at the narrative of the story and how everything unfolds and how it all plays out in this beautiful way, we see that what happens is because there was this delay in the conversation, God was able to show up. I don't know if Esther was doing that on purpose or not, but what I do know is that as we look at this story, Esther is providing all of this rhythm and cadence of the conversation that allows God to show up in unbelievable ways. Right? Praying and fasting for three days is not what you would naturally think about doing if you have a really pressing conversation to have. But that says, you know, we need to give space for God to show up. Because if God doesn't show up, we're all dead. Right? You wouldn't naturally have one opportunity with the king and say, let's wait, let's wait, let's wait. It takes a lot of confidence to delay a conversation. But if the conversation has such magnitude, sometimes you need to, to raise the stakes a little bit. I think it's important for us to understand that if we are wrestling with something in this series that God might be burdening us with, it's probably not a low stakes thing, right? If God is calling you to call out sin in your family, if God is calling you to confess something to your spouse, if God is calling you to quit your job because he's directing you somewhere new, if God is calling you to step into your neighborhood and share the gospel with people that you've lived next to for 20 years, if God's calling you to something big, the reason it's scary, the reason it's hard is because the stakes are high. And if you confess to your spouse and it doesn't go well, your marriage is over. But if you call your kid out for their behavior and they don't want to listen, your relationship might be severed. If you quit your job and God's not in it, you're going to live on the streets, right? These things that God burdens us with that makes us sweat when we think about doing them, they're, they're high stakes things. And yet when Esther has something of the highest stakes, she doesn't rush into it. She doesn't move hastily. She's terrified. Her life is on the line. But she provides some space for God to show up in the midst of it. And she trusts that he will. It's funny, as I looked at this principle in the text, I kept thinking about all these different times in, in my work here at the church where the same principles emerged. I remember meeting up with, with Butch Monk and a few of our other ministry staff a number of years back, and, and we were having a conversation about someone who was serving in a key volunteer role who, whose life was just falling apart and they didn't want to deal with it. And we had tried to talk to them. We had tried to come alongside them. We had tried to offer help, but they were refusing to see the sin in their life. They were refusing to deal with it. And it was coming time where it was about, we were about to have to go and remove them from their ministry post and say, you need to deal with this issue. But it was scary because this is the person's like calling in their life. They're a good person. They're just blind to this issue. We know that if it goes wrong, they're going to storm out of the church and say, I hate Christians. My church burned me, and we don't want that. We love this person. We want to have good results. We want them to come back to Jesus. We want it to be a win. So we say, Butch, right? You know everything. What do we do? You write this down. Butch Muck knows everything. And Butch says, he's like, you know what? He probably said something really like, awesome. He probably like, went like this while he said it. He said, 
He said, back in the day when we were working with Pastor Jake, Jake was our pastor before Larry, uh, back in the day, we would always pray people out of their positions. I'm like, what? Like, did I miss that class at seminary? What, what does that mean? He's like, no, it's not, it's not a trick. Like, we would realize that when there's something hard that needs to be done in church and God is calling us to do it and there's so much potential for collateral damage and their life is on the line or something big like that, we realize, you know what, let's not step into it too quickly. Let's pray that God would do something supernatural, right? And so we take a week and we just pray and we fast and we talk. And before we engage with a person, and we just see maybe God will do something. He's like, and it's crazy. So many times during that week of prayer, the person comes to their senses. Or they come and they repent. Or they move to Canada, right? Or they do something <laughs> that just makes it so. Instead of spinning out of control, it just self-resolves. He says, so let's just give some space for God to move and let's... Let's pray and let's see what happens. I'm like, I'm going to take that one to the bank. I'm going to do that all the time. Right? Remember that the last few years, as we've talked through similar issues with Pastor Larry, he's always kind of brought up the concept that sometimes the Bible says when someone's in sin, you have to go and confront them. And sometimes it doesn't go so well. And so when it doesn't go so well, you've got to bring some more people along and kind of raise the stakes, escalate. But sometimes that doesn't go so well. So when that doesn't go so well, you've got to escalate again and bring the church. And, and it gets messy and it's hard. And eventually you might have to remove them from your church community. And that's just so difficult to do. But that's what God has called us to do sometimes. And so Larry's always said, listen, we're going to do what the Bible says. We're going to confront. We're going to escalate. But... So we have to remember the Bible doesn't give us a timeline on how quickly we should do these things, right? It's not like you go and confront someone, and when they say, well, I don't like what you're saying, they're like, well, hold on, I'm going to bring someone else in the room. And somebody else walks in the room, right? It's like, well, I don't like this. Well, I'm going to bring some more people, and the whole church shows up in the room. It's like, we don't escalate quickly. Let's give some space for God to move. Sometimes you, you confront someone, and they're just, they push back at first, right? They've never heard this before. This is hard for them to hear, so let's, let's give some time for God to work on their heart. Let's give some time for them to process what was said. Let's give some time. Let's give some space for them to come to their senses. And if we need to escalate, we'll escalate. But, but sometimes God works as we give God time to work. Now, sometimes this is a principle that helps when you're stepping into the conversation that God might be calling you to step into. Right? Maybe you can pray the conversation away. Maybe you can give some space, some time for someone to process. Sometimes it's as simple as telling someone, hey, hey, there's something I want to talk to you about. Can we set up a time next week to talk about it? And in that space, they're starting to wrestle with what's going on in their life. And God uses that space to do his work. When Esther creates space in this story, space for prayer, space for fasting. She has the conversation, but even the way she has the conversation is a way that creates space for God to move throughout the land. She gives space. Now, I'm not saying you always do this. Right? Sometimes you need to deal with something now. A flip side, a dark side of this whole thing is sometimes you give space for God to move and there's also space for the enemy to move. You take too long and all of a sudden the person is just built up an argument against you. They built up their defenses against you. I get it. We've got to rely on, on sensitivity to the Lord in the midst of all this. In fact, even in this story, uh, Esther gives this space for God to move. It says, let's talk tomorrow. We, this can wait until tomorrow. But before to, between today and tomorrow, some bad things start to happen. Right? Haman leaves the, the dinner the first night, and, and he's excited. Right? He's been part of a banquet with the king and the queen. He's like, 
I feel like I'm like rising to the top of the society and he's so happy. But on his way home, Haman sees Mordecai at the gate. Oh, stupid Mordecai. I hate that guy. Mordecai's fasting and mourning, and Haman's like, oh, this guy's a buzzkill, right? I like this guy. He realizes that Mordecai won't bow to him. It's like, oh, I forgot Mordecai. So he goes home to his wife, he goes home to his friends, and he says, guys, my day was supposed to be great. I, met, I dined with the king and the queen, but I just, I can't get any satisfaction in anything because Mordecai is just, he's always on my case, he's always there. And his wife and friends say, well, maybe, maybe you should take care of Mordecai. Maybe you should end his life. They give him this wonderful piece of advice. They say, this is verse 14 of chapter 5. Mordecai, or Haman, have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then... Go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. <laughs> so Esther is going to bed that night, thinking, okay, it's working so far. I've got one more day. Tomorrow I'm going to ask my big question. Then me and Mordecai and all of our people will be safe. If it all works, God, please let it work. Haman goes to bed thinking, okay. Just going to go to bed. When I wake up, first day, I'm going to go to the king. I'm going to murder Mordecai. And then I'm going to go to this fun banquet and see what Esther wants to say. And while Esther is trying to give space for God to work, the enemy is building this offensive weapon against what Esther's trying to do. But in the middle of the night, the king, who went to bed probably just thinking like, oh, that was a great party. I can't wait to have a good dinner tomorrow. He wakes up and he can't sleep. I can't fall asleep, can't fall asleep. So he calls his attendants and says, hey, can you guys come in here and just like brief me on what's going on in the kingdom or something? Maybe that'll help me fall asleep. And so they come in and they start reading like the newspaper to him. And they say, More, they say uh, King Xerxes, well, this is interesting. Uh, did you know there was an assassination attempt against you? He's like, what? Yeah, yeah, it sounds like these two guys wanted to kill you and they were talking about it at the city gate and some Jewish guy named Mordecai heard about it, he turned them in, they were executed, and now the threat has been vanquished. The king's like, that's awesome. Did anybody ever honor that guy Mordecai? I don't think so. All right, first thing tomorrow, we're going to honor Mordecai. And Haman's like, it's like 6.30 in the morning, and Haman's like waiting outside for the, like, the king's office to open, right? And he's I'm going to kill Mordecai. I'm going to kill Mordecai, right? And the door is open. The king comes in. Haman like storms in. The king's like, well, hold on. Before you say anything, I've got a question for you today. What do you think we should do for someone the king wants to honor? And Haman's like, well, if you're looking to honor people, I know some good people to be honored. But uh, I think if you want to honor someone, you should give them the royal treatment. Put him in the king's robe. Put the king's ring on his finger. Put him on the king's own horse. Parade him around the king's city and have someone walking with the steed shouting out, look what happens to the one the king delights to honor. You know, just really do it up. King's like, I like that. Will you do that for Mordecai? I imagine the king saying, like, did you have a question for me? He's like, never mind, never mind, never mind. (laughs) 
So like Haman runs out, he like gets the king's horse, he gets Mordecai, replaces his mourning cloths with the king's robe, throws him on the steed, takes him around the whole kingdom. And I just picture like Jonah when he's preaching against Nineveh. I picture him preaching that way, like, look what happens to the one the king delights to honor. Look what happens to the king. You know? And he takes him around the whole city. Then he puts Mordecai back. He puts the horse back, covers his face, and he runs home to his family again. He's like, oh, no. Mordecai. And it's interesting, his his family doesn't just see this as like a little ironic twist. His family senses that something in the air has changed. That all of this that was ramping up towards Haman's benefit, the tables are now turning on him and his demise is near. In the 13th verse of chapter 6, Haman's family and friends give him a new piece of advice. They say, Haman, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Something has changed. And the one who was trying to destroy the people of God all of a sudden he's become public enemy number one. I think a lot of times we, we forget when God calls us to have difficult conversations that the most important part of a difficult conversation is the part that God plays in it. Right? it your words are not the most important word. Your timeline is not the most most important work. Even your prayers are not the most important work. The most important part of a difficult conversation is the part that God plays, the part behind the scenes, the part that no one sees, the part that changes the heart of the audience of the conversation, the part that sets up for success the things you're going to say. Sometimes the reason there's so much weight on us when we have to do something hard is we feel like it's all up to us to change the world. The moral of the Esther story is that it's not your job to change the world. It's God's job to change the world. But sometimes he invites you in to his work. Some people give the book of Esther a bunch of flack because the name of God is never mentioned in the book. I think that's just crazy. Because if you read the book of Esther as a Christian or as a believer in God, you can't help but see that God is the one doing all the work. Right? She prays, she fasts, everyone prays, they fast, they go to the king. And even before she has a chance to bring out her request, the tides of history are turning around her. It's almost like God has come from the heavens and he's stampeding into the capital city and he's changing everything, not in response to her words, but in response to the prayers of his people. And he's the hero in this book. He's the one who shows up and changes it. Esther's kind of just a spectator watching God do amazing things in the journey. Haman is realizing that his fate is near, and there's a knock on his door. It's the king's attendant saying, hey, it's time for dinner. It's like, oh, geez, right? So he gets whisked away to dinner, and he sits down with the king and with Esther, and they eat, and the king says again to Esther, what is it that you need? I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. Just make your request. And Esther says, I... All I want, I ask, is that you would spare my life, me and my people. A wicked scheme has been devised, and on this certain date, 
all of the Jewish people, of which I am one, are going to be destroyed in our country. I don't know how to change it, but King, you can change it. And the king says, well, where, what, how did this happen? Who did this? And Esther, like, looks over at Haman. He's like, this wicked Haman, he did all of it. And the king's like, what? And he goes outside, and he's freaking out. And then Haman, like, knows that he's about to die. So he jumps on top of Esther. He's like, Esther, please spare my life. Then the king comes back, and he sees Haman on his wife. And he's like, what are you doing in my house? Right? And he looks out the window, and he sees this giant pole that someone erected to kill someone on. And he says, take Haman out there and kill him on this pole, right? So the attendants come in, and Haman is extinguished, and the king's fury subsides. And Esther is just like caught in the middle of the whirlwind. Like that was crazy because God showed up. If God has called you to step into something difficult, there, there's a chance that the reason you don't want to step into it is because there are so many factors that could go bad. There's so much potential for collateral damage. There's so much potential for gossip and spin and you can't control any of that. The truth is, you can't control any of that. But if God has called you to step into a conversation like that, he's not calling you to control any of that. He's controlling you to be faithful. He's, controlling you to, he's calling you to, to call on his name. He's calling you to simply show up and put the, put the conversation on the table. He's calling you to, to be faithful to what he's asked you to do. The results are not up to you. The results are his. Sometimes the results are crazier than we could have ever anticipated. Other times we walk away from the conversation thinking, why did I even do that? It did nothing. But either way, your job is to not control the future. That's God's job. Your job is to simply show up and be faithful to what he's called you to do. If you're looking for conversation, or not looking for, but if you've got a conversation pending and you're kind of wondering how to what perspective to take as you walk into it? Let me give you a perspective from these chapters in Esther. When it comes to difficult conversations, if God has called you into it, God himself will take you through it. That's how it works. He's in charge. He's in control. You just have to show up and do the part he's called you to do. So if that's coming up for you this week or this month or in the future, here are some things that you can take from this passage that will help you. These are how to set up difficult conversations for success. Number one, prepare well. I don't necessarily mean like do your research. I mean prepare like Esther prepared. Understand the value of prayer and fasting and preparation for, for a conversation like that. Realize that what you're about to do is, is difficult and the stakes are high, so Prepare in a way that's going to set it up for success. Think about what you're going to say, right? Walk into that room trusting, okay, God, I know what you've called me to do, and I'm just going to do it. Prepare well. And second, leave space for God to move. We've talked about this enough. We don't have to talk about it again. Number three, trust that God will give you the words. Now, Jesus talked about this, right? He said, when, when you're ever called in before the authorities to give an account of, of who I am, he said, don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll give you the words. The Spirit will give you the words to say. Trust that he'll give you the words. Right? You don't have to craft the most beautiful speech. You don't have to convince someone to drop their addiction with your words. Right? That's not your job. God gives you words. He does what he wants with your words. Trust that he will give you the words. And finally, surrender the results up to him. God has not called you to get a positive result. God has called you to be faithful. And if God has called you to bring a conversation up, that's all he's called you to do. If God's called you to quit your job, 
You don't have to have a plan afterwards, right? You might want to have one, but you don't have to have a plan afterwards, right? Your, your job is to simply do the thing God has called you to do. The results are up to him. So be confident in what he has called you to do and be open to whatever he wants to do through it because sometimes he shows up and he does immeasurably more than we could even ask or imagine. One of the things that I, I realized as we kind of walk through this concept is that this is the way that God deals with us, isn't it? Right? He created us. He watches us live on this planet and we're all messed up. We all do crazy things. We all deserve to be confronted at the least, right? And yet God seems to allow us to, to live the lives that we're living. Right? Sometimes he comes and he tries to confront us. Sometimes he draws things out of us. Sometimes he encounters us with the truth and makes us have to make decisions. Sometimes he takes us to the crossroads. But even when we say, no, thank you, and we go our own way, he lets us. Even when the results are up to God, he leaves the results up to himself. And he allows us to, to walk down the path of life. And he gives us time. He gives us space. He's long-suffering, the Bible says. He, he chooses to suffer instead of punishing us right away. He gives us our whole lives to come to him. Now, this morning, if you're at a spot where you feel like you can't come to God because he's given you enough chances, he's given you another one. Come to him. Trust in him. Follow him. Give your life to him. Yes, he's gracious. Yes, he's long-suffering. Yes, someday your life here on this planet will end. Um, but today, there's a choice in front of you. God might be saying, do this, do that, follow me, give your life to me. Now, surrender your life today. Now, this morning, as we take communion together, it's a reminder for us that, that God is the one who suffered so that we might have life. And we hold this bread, we hold this cup in our hands, and we remember Jesus who came to this earth not to condemn us, but to save us, so much so that he was willing to die instead of us so that any of us who come to him might have life eternal. As, as we pray and as we hold these elements, think about the fact that God has rescued you, he's saved you, he's spared you, and he's calling you into a life with him that never ends. Let me pray for us, then we'll receive communion together.